Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming here this evening. Wow, what a beautiful crowd. Uh, you know, a few months ago I mentioned about losing weight, going on a diet, and how we expect to go on this diet and to see immediate results, right? Well, we expect the same thing when we pray. And in this microwave and instant message world, it just doesn't happen. We have to be patient. Well, patience, my friend, is a virtue. And I want you to know that I got on this, the scale this morning, and I want you to know that the whole armor of God is heavy. Hallelujah. <laughs> Did you know that about one-third of the Gospels is about the last week of Jesus Christ? It's his last week. One-third. The breakdown, according to each of the Gospels, is one-third of Matthew uh, from, let me see, Matthew 21 through 28. A third of Mark from Mark 11 six through 16. A quarter from Luke, from Luke 19 to 24. And nearly half of John, from John 12 to 20. And now this we have, what, 89 chapters in the Gospels? 29 are about the last week of Christ. So we see that half of John is about the last week, but only 25% of, uh, 25% of Luke is about his last week. And I would speculate that's because Luke wasn't there. He researched, he investigated this. And being a good researcher, he made it balanced and gave 25% to each portion. I'm only speculating. I wasn't there. But we see that John, half of John, was there. It was the last book written of the Gospels. It was by the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was by the disciple that followed Christ around. If you recall at the last of John, he, he basically was following Christ and Peter up the hill like a puppy dog does, right? He, he loved Jesus. And he was the, the, the disciple who was the witness at the cross, who cared for Mary, Jesus' mother, for the rest of her life. And I, I speculate that that's why most of his book is about the last week of Christ, because he puts things in there that's not in the other Gospels. He adds to them. It's not completely different, but it's adding to it. So I'm happy to see you this evening for our Good Friday celebration. Uh, if you know what happened on this day, you might wonder why it's called Good Friday. Anybody ever, ever wonder that? Yeah, a few of us. title of my sermon is, What's So Good About This Friday? We know what happened. So... Britannica.com notes that Good Friday, which is the Friday before Easter, is the day of Christians commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. To commemorate something, we are honoring the situation with the intention of keeping the memory of the event that happened. So we are here to honor the memory of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In Germany, they, the word they use for it translates to sorrowful day. And if you think about what happens today... That's more appropriate, right? I'm going to see about changing your mind here. As one from the outside looking in, 
this might seem more appropriate, the sorrow for Friday. Um, this is a day we commemorate the death of Christ. So let's briefly take a look at the final week of Christ and concentrate on the last 24 hours. And we'll start in John 12, 1 through 3. And I'm going to read, well, this one's NIV. Most of mine are in New King James Version. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in, in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. When Christ was anointed by Mary, one of the disciples specifically spoke up and objected to it because she was wasting the oil. He wanted the money. And what Jesus said next in John twelve seven was, "Let her alone. She has kept this day for, she has kept this for the day of my burial." This is the anointing of Christ at Bethany by Mary. This is six days before the Passover. If we go back, if we back up to the Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, so we're just John 11, we can see how close to the same time period is probably within a few weeks from the event of raising Lazarus from the dead. The testimony of Lazarus's resurrection caused the high priest to plot to kill Jesus and later to plot to kill Lazarus as well. And this was close to the time frame uh, of the Passover as noted in John 11.55 where it says, And the Passover of the Jews was near. So the next day after Jesus is anointed, they make their trip on Palm Sunday. They're singing songs of ascent. They were singing praises to God as Pastor Mark told you on Sunday, on Palm Sunday. And Christ knew he was going to die. Since Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, it wasn't a very long walk. So in case you've ever wondered, it's like 1.72 miles or something like that. It's not a very long walk, but it's uphill. Both ways in the snow. All right. So we are going to start with Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. This is on their way to Jerusalem where he tells them that he's going to die. And he tells him exactly what's going to happen. He knew it was going to happen, and yet he still praised God. He still sang the songs. And then Jesus teaches about the grain of wheat that must die in order to produce more. This is, I think, his way of saying that he has to die in order to produce what needs to come next. Then he makes a profound statement in John 12, 27. And we're going to read 27 through 30. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but this, but for this purpose I come to this hour. Now listen carefully to these next verses. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, 
saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. This is not the first time that a voice from heaven has spoken to Jesus. Okay. So Christ rides into the town on donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And this will make sense later why I bring that into it. During this last week, I think it's safe to say that there were some conflicts between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees since he calls them hypocrites several times in Matthew 23. Then he continues to teach. He doesn't stop. He knows what's coming up. He continues to teach. He's got things to do. There's not much time left. He has his last supper, so now we're on Thursday, right? Judas runs off to betray him. He institutes the communion which we just deserved. He washes the feet of the disciples. And then they take an after-dinner stroll to the garden. That's an easy way of saying that Christ went to the garden. So now we're in the garden at Gethsemane. Imagine, if you will, a man so distraught, so sorrowful over what is coming. He, he, he knows the coming events. And he goes to pray in the garden. He takes his friends with him. He takes the disciples with him. And he tells them to sit right here. And so they sit right there. And he's going to go pray. But he takes Peter, James, and John with him. His inner circle. He takes the people with him that, that are the closest to him. He's sorrowful. He becomes sorrowful. He's deeply distressed. According to Matthew twenty six thirty seven, Before saying to them... In Matthew 26, 38, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Now, he confides in his friends that he's worried, that he's sorrowful, that, that he's got a lot on his mind. And Jesus is going to pray, and he wants his best friends with him. He wants the closest people with him. He cries before them, and I say this because any person... Who is exceedingly sorrowful is going to cry. I wasn't there. I don't know. It doesn't say, but I would say I would speculate he did. He was fully man and fully God. Well, he instructs them to sit while he goes and pray and takes Peter and, and takes them with him. Well, he confides in them. Uh, I imagined that Jesus was weeping before his friends, brokenhearted about what's to come, and probably a bit scared. Because he knows what he must endure in the coming hours. He wants his friends there with him. He asks them to watch and pray with him. And he walks a few feet away and he falls flat on his face. And it's, it's not like he tripped. He got weak in the knees. He was worried. He's scared. He's sorrowful. He's, he's got things on his mind. Walking is not one of them. So he falls down and he prays. Oh, my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that's in Matthew 26, 39, if you're keeping up. Now, Max Lucado describes Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in a vivid way. He states, now look into the picture. Look closely through the shadowy foliage. See the solitary figure? Flat on the ground, face stained with dirt and tears... Fist pounding hard on the hard earth, 
eyes wide in a stupor of fear, hair matted with salty sweat. Is that blood on his forehead? Well, yes, it is. Christ was sweating blood because of the amount of stress he was under. Christ prayed, his disciples slept. We can assume that Christ prayed for an hour because in Matthew 26, 40, Christ says to Peter after finding them asleep, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Now, Matthew 26, 39, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's a tiny prayer to take an hour to do, right? In Luke... Luke adds that an angel came and gave Christ strength in his prayer. And Luke twenty two forty four states, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. When you earnestly pray, it is not a quick prayer, as I believe some of you can agree. So two more times Christ goes and prays the same prayer. And two more times the disciples fall asleep. And after the third time, Judas comes to betray him. We're going to read in John 18, 3 through 6. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. In the original Greek, what Christ says is ego eimi, which means I am. The he was added later. He says ego eimi, I am. Who else said, I am? That was God. Remember that this was the name that God tells Moses in Exodus 3.14 to tell the people of Israel who it was that sent him. Tell them that I am has sent me to you. When Jesus spoke these words, the entire detachment of troops drew back and fell to the ground. I heard a pastor preach about this one time. And he said that... uh, they didn't just fall to the ground. It was, it was almost like you've seen in the movies where a car bomb or a bomb goes off and people are standing there and they blow backwards and fall to the ground. He imagines that's what it was like. And the reason that he thinks it's this way, and I, I tend to agree with him, is that the power of the Word of God is shown in this moment. Christ lets them know by the power of his word that he doesn't have to go with them. That he could destroy every one of them with a word. And yet he voluntarily went with them so that prophecy could be fulfilled. Christ goes with them, bound up, first to Annas, uh, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And when Annas questioned him, one of the soldiers, one of the officers, didn't like the, what Christ had responded with. And he struck him with the palm of his hand. 
Now, I don't imagine he struck him with the palm of the hand. I think he struck him with the palm of the hand. I think he hit him with the full force of what he had, not a slap. I could be wrong. I wasn't there. But he struck him with the palm of his hand. That much we do know. Well, Jesus was sent to Caiaphas where he was questioned more. And he was hit again many times while blindfolded. And he was mocked and beaten and spit upon and sentenced to death. Then he has moved over to face Pontius Pilate in the morning. And in Mark 15, 1, we see that immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. I want you all to catch that. In the morning. That means they took Christ to Pilate in the morning, but that everything else, the accusations, the mockings, the speedings, the pit upon, was all done at night, usually when thieves and murderers come out. Think about that. This was done in secret. This was done in darkness. Now, Christ had been condemned to die by the Sanhedrin, but they needed to get permission by the Roman government to put him to death. So they took him to Pilate. And Pilate finds no fault in him. But he finds out he's Galilean. And he sends him over to Herod. And if you all remember the story of why that happened. Because Herod was in charge of the Galileans. He sends him over to Herod. Herod, he doesn't speak to Herod. Herod robes him. Sends him back to Pilate. Says, do what you want with him. Christ was mocked and beaten in both places because he had not given a defense, nor had he said anything for the accusations made by the chief priests and scribes. Then Pilate presents Jesus before the crowd. This is for their decision on whom to let go. He presents Jesus, who is innocent. He presents Barabbas, who is an insurrectionist and a murderer. The crowd chose Barabbas for release and for Jesus to die. Just a few days ago, as he was coming in the gate in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, they were praising him. They were singing praises to him. And now they want him to die. Pilate washes his hands of it all and proclaims that he is innocent of the blood of Jesus, of this just man, as he hands Jesus over to be crucified after He scourges him. And to scourge someone is to whip them with a lash that has multiple lashes on it for maximum effect. If I hit someone with a whip, am I innocent of his blood? I'm just saying. Now let's look at uh, Matthew 27. This one's going to be a long section, 27 through 54. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed at the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him in the head. Then they mocked him and they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him. And led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, 
Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. They had, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and, my clothing, and for my clothing they cast lot. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, king of the, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I'm going to pause here for a minute. This is, this is trivia but not trivial. Do you know why it says Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani and then gives a translation of what that means? Anyone ever thought about it? It's because when Christ spoke those words, he spoke Hebrew. The original Matthew was written in Greek. And so when he spoke uh, the Hebrew, what they did is transliterated. It's for the Greek people to read Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that'll come in play in a minute, because you'll see where that comes from. Now we continue with 47. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with some sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion who was there with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. This was not a good Friday. As a matter of fact, you might say it was the worst Friday ever. So what makes it good? I want you to see the parallels between the death of Christ and what is written in Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53. As Christ is on the cross, he quotes Psalm 21. 22.1 when he says, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, is Christ quoting Scripture to be quoting Scripture, or is he pointing at Psalms 22 for the prophetic words of David for us to see? I think it's the latter. I think he's pointing that direction so that we can see it. Let's go to Psalms 22, 7 and 8. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Didn't we just read those in Matthew 27? All right. So prophecy is coming true. In Psalms 22 and 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They did that, more prophecy coming true. In Isaiah 53, 3 through 9, we see he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And he hid, as it were, our faces, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's Old Testament. That's Isaiah. That's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. And during his last day. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't make a defense. He took all of our sins upon himself. We see that Christ fulfilled many prophecies on this day alone. It's almost like God was throwing a firework display and showing the multiple uh, prophecies and showing them to us. And with each prophecy fulfilled... In the Gospels, the fireworks went off and we oohed and awed. And we marveled at what we saw, but we were missing the point. The fireworks began to build up. Suspense for the big finale that we would expect. Firing off in rapid succession as the prophecy concerning the Messiah is fulfilled. The anticipation is there for the final explosion that surprises us and fills us with delight, but it doesn't come. The final surprise comes on the third day when Christ's own prophetic words are fulfilled at his resurrection.
So it is good. As Paul Kinderdine noted a couple of weeks ago, it is the shed blood of the sacrifice that covers up the sin. It is the shed blood of Christ that makes us the righteousness of God in Christ because of this sacrifice. Now we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We know the purpose of Christ's sacrifice was to save us from hell. We know John 3.16, and we should know John 3.17 as well. It states, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn this world, but that this world through him might be saved. It is through Christ that we are saved. We hang crosses in our churches. We hang them on our neck. And it is a symbol of torture and death. But as a believer, it is a symbol of the end of the beginning of a life in Christ. It is a symbol of what our Lord and Savior went through when the sins of the world were placed upon Him as a sacrifice. This is what is good about Friday. Christ's sacrifice gave payment for the penalty of all sins, past, present, and future. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega of both revelation and redemption. He is the sum of divine wisdom and the fulfillment of the divine plan for the world. This truly is a time to remember what Christ did for us on the cross... This truly is a good Friday because of the final result of the actions of that day. Shall we pray? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much that you made a way for a permanent sacrifice that covers our sins even 2,000 years later. Thank you for giving your only begotten Son as this sacrifice, and thank you for the understanding that we gain through godly men who preach your word and show us how much you love us. Thank you for pastors like Jeremy and Mark who teach your word with theological accuracy so that we may comprehend how to apply it in our daily lives as we grow closer to you. We humbly ask that you continue to open the hearts of the family here at Heights as we continue to love you, to love each other, and to love serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this comes to the close of my sermon. There's a video that we are going to play, and after it's done, you are dismissed. But I want you to listen to the words of this video. It is a beautiful, beautiful song sung by David Phelps, who was in the Gaither Vocal Band. So, thank you.